Well, hey guys, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 7 tonight. We are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are getting close to being done. We've got two or three weeks left. Um, Well, after tonight, one or two weeks left. I haven't quite decided how we're going to land this plane yet, so... Um, but it's, it's coming. Uh, at most, it'll be two more weeks. And so, but I won't, I won't say we're going to do something that we're not yet. So I won't get your hopes up that we're going to be done next week or anything, all right? So, um, well, yeah, if I haven't met you, by the way, my name is Kyle. I'm the college pastor here. And I'm really glad to have y'all. I'm glad that you guys are here tonight. I know y'all have a lot going on uh, here at this point in the semester. And so really glad that y'all have joined us. Um, and hope you're at least somewhat full from food that we fed you enough and, Things like that. So, but like I said, we're going to be in Matthew 7 tonight, walking through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in verses 1 through 12. Um, but while you get there, um, tonight we're going to be talking about the idea of judgment and many other things that we'll get to. But as we kind of get going, I want to um, kind of start out with something interesting that I found on the internet, which is a scary place to be uh, earlier this week. But tell me this if you, you know how Google does that suggested search thing? Or if you put in like some words, it pops up with some suggestion searches. So what do you think would be some of the top things if I put in the Bible says not to? All right, if, if, if I put in the Bible says not to, and then you get your suggested search. What are some of the things you think that, that people on Google are saying the Bible says not to do? Just drink, okay. Yeah, that's actually not even in the top five of them, but it's in there. It's like the top 10, but yeah, okay, that one. What, what are some other ones? Murder, yes, that's, that's, yeah, the Bible definitely says not to murder. It's not in the top five, though, either. Not even in the top ten. What? Not to kiss. <laughs> but it says holy kiss, right? So, um, <laughs> and then you have the Song of Solomon, which is much more than kissing, so. Um, but, uh, just saying. Um, so, what else? Tattoos, okay, yeah. That, that's not in the top five, also, but. Have what? Have nuns? Guns. Oh, I thought nuns. I'm like, do you own nuns? Is that a thing you can do? Like, okay. Guns, yeah. Also not in the top five, but I don't, someone out there may be searching that. Okay, one more. Steel. Steel. Okay, also not in the top five. But, so yeah, yeah, you're like, okay, Kyle, what is the top five? You're killing me. All right, here's the top five, all right? So n- number five is the Bible says not to cut your hair. All right? The Nazarite vow was the thing for that, but the Bible doesn't teach us all to not cut our hair. Um, number four is the Bible says not to eat pork, okay, which is not true. Amen for Jesus and fulfilling the law, so we eat bacon, all right? So um, number three is the Bible says not to swear, okay, yeah. Um, number two is the Bible says not to eat meat, which I don't know where they're getting that from. Amen, we can eat meat, all right? We ate lots of meat tonight, okay? And number one is the Bible says not to what? Judge, You knew where I was going with this, all right? So, yeah. But number one is the Bible says not to judge, all right? Which I thought was really interesting. So, so with that, um, we're going to talk about this idea of, of not judging tonight and what Jesus means by that as we kind of go through the Sermon on the Mount. But if you're new with us, to see, you kind of know what we've been doing. We've been walking through the book of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, one of the most famous sermons Jesus ever gave, called the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing Uh, the life of a follower of Jesus, the life of a disciple, what they look like, what they do, uh, what they value, how they live. And and in this, he's been explaining what it looks like to follow him. And in the midst of that, the past few weeks, we've been looking at the warnings that Jesus gives us about the traps that we can fall into as we follow him. Traps like wealth, traps like living our spiritual lives for the approval of other people, things like that. But now in chapter 7, 
he's going to begin to switch gears into not our spiritual lives as individuals, but our spiritual lives as a community and our spiritual lives in relationships. Because if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what he's been doing is he's been contrasting like the life of a, of a disciple and the spiritual life of a disciple with the spiritual life of a Pharisee, right? We've seen that over and over again. And the Pharisees were the religious leaders of that time. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them lived with this sense of like external religion where if I just do enough things, if I follow the Old Testament well enough, if I do all this external stuff, if I dress a certain way, talk a certain way, uh, present myself in a certain way, then God's gonna accept me because of all the stuff that I do. And it doesn't matter what my heart is like. It doesn't matter what my motivations are. As long as my external stuff looks good, then I'm good with God. I'm definitely good with people, right? And Jesus had been kind of comparing and contrasting that kind of external religiosity with an internal heart transformed by him. And so when we get, begin to think about that, then we have to wonder, what would a relationship with a Pharisee look like? Like if you had a Pharisee, or a Pharisee, Pharisee, wow, Pharisee what? So we had a Pharisee... <laughs> That was cheesy. That's a Christian t-shirt somewhere. Uh, if you had a Pharisee as a friend, you got to wonder, what would, what would it be like to be a friend with a Pharisee? And if, if we stereotype it, we got to wonder, like, they probably would be a pretty judgmental person, right? They would probably be very holier than thou. Like, I read my Bible for three hours yesterday. What'd you do? Um, I'll watch Netflix. Okay, you know, kind of thing like that. And very judgmental. And that's the opposite of what Jesus wants us to be. And so in these verses today, in 7, 1 through 12, we're going to see the kind of community and kind of relationships that Jesus wants us to have as Christians, not just with non-Christians, but with Christians as well. All right, so that's kind of the idea of tonight is we're gonna look at five marks of kingdom-centered, you could say gospel-centered, you can fill in the blanks with that, but kingdom-centered community and relationships, okay? So with that, let's read Matthew 7, 1 through 12, and then dive into this some, all right? So read with me, I'm in the ESV translation. It says this, it says, "'Judge not that you not be judged.'" For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it's relevant to all of our lives, and specifically tonight as we look at our relationships and even our own tendency to want to be critical and judgmental of others in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would expose our hearts, expose our motivations to you that you may... um, do the, the deep, spiritually surgical work that only your word can do uh, to expose what needs to be corrected, Lord, um, to shape us more into the image of Jesus, that our community here in our college ministry and our church as a whole would be shaped around these verses um, to seek to, to love others well and build them up and not tear them down and judge. I pray for anyone in here tonight, Lord, that, that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, Father, that you may even use your word tonight, Lord, to open their eyes to, um, to their own need for you, to their sin, but to the, the free offer of salvation and grace uh, that you're extending to them tonight, Lord. 
We love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, five things, five marks of kingdom-centered community tonight, all right? So you may read these verses, and especially the don't judge, and you may have heard the interpretation before, right? That basically what these verses say is the, the, the old saying that only God can judge me, right? You know, you, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Um, you know, you can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong because only God can tell me that, right? Which is an ironic statement because God does very clearly tell us what's wrong in his word many times. But if we look at the, these texts uh, that we see tonight in Matthew 7, we got to compare that to the life of Jesus. So think about the life of Jesus. What did he do many times in his ministry? He spent time correcting people, right? He spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount correcting people's false beliefs about things. He spent a lot of time correcting people's beliefs about sin. And he was very clear in his word uh, about how we shouldn't shy away from the truth because he surely didn't shy away from the truth. He entered into awkward situations many times uh, to speak about the truth of people like the woman in the well when he called her out um, on her sinful lifestyle but also offered her free living water in him. But he was really clear about speaking the truth to people in love. Think about the Apostle Paul even, right? The, old, like the book of Galatians, we see Paul's very clear about sin and truth in Galatians. We've been looking at it on Sunday mornings and in all over scripture. So we can't look at these verses even about, you know, judge not and, and say that this means that, you know, okay, we, we shouldn't spend time uh, evaluating um, and determining what's right and what's wrong in people's lives and what's right and wrong in general in life. It doesn't mean that we, we just pretend to not notice when uh, people kind of fall short in different ways. It doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to how people live their lives, that we don't live wisely with how we should relate to people. It doesn't mean that we ignore scripture and, and what it teaches about what's right and wrong and things like that, because the rest of the Bible definitely tells us that we should do that um, in the right ways, and we'll talk lots about that. But it does tell us not to judge. And so what does that mean? Well, let me give you a, a great example of kind of what this means, all right? Because while Jesus he spent plenty of time correcting people, he didn't judge. And we heard these verses that Drew read earlier from John 3.16 and John 3.17. But think about John 3.17 again. You can, you can look it up if you want to or just listen to me read it. But John 3.17 says this. Jesus says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And here's the thing, that word condemn is a Greek word that also is the same word that's translated as judge in Matthew 7. It's the word krino, if you care. Um, but it's, it's translated judge and it's translated condemn in different parts of the New Testament. And so we see that really when we talk about judging and what Jesus is talking about, he's not saying that we, we shouldn't determine and, and assess you know, things that are right and wrong and even speak the truth to people about what's right and wrong in their life. But he's saying that we shouldn't condemn people that we shouldn't stand in a place of condemnation uh, over people. Because think about what Jesus did. He clearly spoke the truth to people, but then he invited them to to come near to him, to to find their salvation and forgiveness in him. He offered up his life to save them and he made sinners his friends. And so he didn't stand in condemnation over them. And so in context, what Jesus is telling us in these verses is not to be judgmental, right? We don't judge, but we're not judgmental. We're not critical. And we don't have a condemning attitude of people. All right, that's kind of what he's getting at here. I love the way that J.D. Greer says it. He's the pastor of the, or the, the president, excuse me, of the Southern Baptist Convention right now. He's also the pastor of Summit Church in North Carolina. But J.D. Greer said it this way. He said, you judge a person uh, not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. It's not telling someone the truth that's judging them. It's what you do after you tell them the truth that determines whether you judge them. Judging someone assumes that you're righteous and they're guilty, and thus guilty them should get away from righteous you. 
And we can never do that, right? So we get this idea that in judging people, what Jesus is saying is that we stand in a position of authority and a place that we're above them, we're better than, better than them, and we can condemn them and say, yeah, well, you're guilty, I'm righteous, get away from me. I'm kind of writing you off as a person. And that's what we do when we judge, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying not to do in these verses, all right? One more quote um, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this because it's so good. He says this, he says, judgment is the forbidden objectification of the other person, which destroys single-minded love. I'm not forbidden to have my own thoughts about the other person, to realize his shortcomings, but only to the extent that it offers me an occasion for forgiveness and unconditional love. All right, and I, I love that because really what Jesus is telling us is this, even the failings of other people, we should view as an opportunity for forgiveness, to show unconditional love to them, not as a chance for us to elevate ourselves above them and stand in condemnation over them. Because honestly, don't we have plenty of failings ourselves? Don't we have plenty of areas in our life where we fall short that we can't stand in judgment over these people? And so Jesus tells us that our judgment, our measuring of people and our critical attitudes have no place in the follower of Christ. And really what he says in his verses, if you go back and look at the beginning of chapter seven, right? He says that, you know, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Really what he's saying is this, is that when we have this kind of critical attitude and judgmental attitude against other people, really we're gonna find that we're gonna receive that same kind of attitude back. And when we criticize, invite, and condemn people, we're gonna receive that in turn. And honestly, what does that do? It causes tons of drama in life, right? It causes tons of, of problems and division and hatred. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. So he says, no, that should have no place in a community that's centered on the gospel. So that's the first thing we see. And honestly, we especially need to hear that in the church, all right? So turn with me, if, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. I wanna show you one verse in 1 Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians 5 if you want to put your finger in Matthew, 1 Corinthians is just, you know, I don't know, like six chapters over? I don't really know how many chapters it is away from, from Matthew. It's in the one C's. Okay, look it up there. But 1 Corinthians 5, in, in this text, Paul's talking about kind of um, division in the church and some drama happening within the church in Corinth. But he gives us some really key insight onto how we need to view community in the church in relations to these, this idea of judgment, all right? I'll give you a second. Right, this is what he says. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. But he says, purge the evil person from among you. So what Paul is saying there is this. He's saying, listen, we need to stop asking outsiders, people outside the church, outside the faith. We need to stop asking them to act like insiders. And we need to start expecting the insiders in the church to act like insiders and stop allowing the insiders to act like outsiders in the faith and hold people who claim to be in Christ uh, accountable to their, their life. Because I mean, honestly, right, isn't much of the church's testimony really harmed when they see us and when the world sees us judging people outside the church and condemning them about their sin while we ignore the sin that we allow to run rampant in the church, right? When we have people... Um, who, who live you know, within the church in an open rebellion against God that they claim to follow Jesus, but yet we let that slide, but yet we're so easy um, and so quick to condemn people outside the church when we don't deal with the stuff inside. All right, not saying we don't hold the truth and things like that, um, but we have a responsibility as Christians, right, to, to hold each other accountable to what uh, we believe. Now, we can't judge people's um, heart motivations and things like that, and I, this is not a saying that you know, we start calling people out for, your motivation's wrong. I mean, you may know that, but chances are you don't, right? So uh, we're not called to judge that. Only God can judge the motives of the heart. 
But we got to hold each other to a higher standard in the church if we're going to have any kind of testimony to the, to the world about who we are and what we really believe. All right? So that's the first idea of judging. But then Jesus moves on to that illustration. He kind of gives the point, right, of don't judge. And then like he always has in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives the illustration, right? And he gives the famous one, right, about the, the speck in someone's eye versus the log. And by the way, if, if someone ever has told you the Bible's boring, they don't understand the Bible. Like we, we're so used to this like image because we hear it like our whole lives. But it's hilarious. Like Jesus was being funny. Like imagine a log stuck in someone's eye. Like, you know, I can't even do it. But imagine, like, it's, it's ridiculous, right? And, and, and someone with a log, like a, a tree trunk sticking out of their eye, going up to someone, hey man, you got a little sawdust in your eye. You're like, really? <laughs> you know, and like, so Jesus used a lot of sarcasm, a lot of humor in, in scripture. So don't let anyone ever tell you the Bible's not funny. All right, it, it's got some funny stuff in there, especially when like donkeys talk in the Old Testament and stuff. It's great. So um, it's a different. I really want to do a sermon series about the weird stuff of the Bible sometime. It'd be really fun. So um, the bald guys having the shoe bears be called down to mall people, things like that. So anyway, all right. But what Jesus is saying is this in this passage, right? With that illustration, He's saying that, that we're like this ridiculous person when we judge and condemn someone without paying attention to our own life, right? That's what he's saying. But honestly, how many times do we do this in our life? How many times are we so quick to look to, at other people and the faults in their life, the, the, their shortcomings, their failings, um, their, their struggles, and how quick are we to condemn them and, and even in our own hearts and minds elevate ourselves above them without even paying attention to our own lives, and what happens is when we, when we judge and criticize people like this guy with the log in his eye, what it does, it blinds us to our own sin and to our own life. I love the way that Bonhoeffer said this. He had a couple of great quotes from this chapter in his book. But he said this. He says, judging others makes us blind. But get this. Whereas love is illuminating. All right, I love that. Judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. All right, I hit you right in the heart in that one. Like when we judge others this way and we have a critical eye to other people while ignoring our sins, we become blind to, number one, our own need for grace, our own need for the gospel, which by the way, you know that the Christian life, like the prerequisite is to admit that you're jacked up. We forget that in the church sometimes, but like the fact that we're in service on Sunday morning means that we've, we've got crap in our lives that we can't fix on our own, that we need Jesus. We forget that sometimes when we dress up nice on, to church and come to service, but we're admitting we're jacked up by even being here. All right, so congratulations, you admitted you're jacked up by being here tonight, okay? Um, that's the prerequisite for, coming to, for being a Christian and for um, being part of the church, okay? Um, but when we forget that and we criticize others, it blinds us to our need for grace in our own sin in our lives, and that's a scary place to be. So Jesus is warning us of this. And really what he's calling us to is this. He's calling us not to make our standard for living the people around us, but he's calling us to make our standard of living Christ himself. And just like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's like, listen, we're all heading toward imitating Christ and, and living like him and, and growing into his image. Because you can always find someone that your holiness and your comparison and how you feel about yourself, other people. Because you can always find someone that you're doing better than in some area. Chances are they're doing better than you in somewhere else. But we can always find an area, especially in our day of social media where comparison is so easy and everything, all right? We can always find a way to compare and examine other people and build ourselves up. But Jesus is saying, no, don't make that your standard. Make me the standard and continue to focus on me. Seek first the kingdom, not seek first to be better than your roommate, all right? But seek first the kingdom and I'll take care of the things in your life. Because if we make our standard just other people, we become just like the Pharisees. We become a hypocrite. We become someone who's just about the show and looking better than other people, all right? 
So that's the first thing we see is, is not judging in this community. Second thing is this. We see that uh, we should love people enough to tell the truth. As you, if you look at verse 5, um, it says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right? So what Jesus, in this analogy, isn't saying that we just pretend that neither of us have specks in our eyes, neither of us have logs in our eyes. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. You're good, I'm good. Just ignore the sin going on in our lives. He doesn't say that, right? He says that we should deal with the speck once we've dealt with our own stuff. Not that we have to be perfect, but we need to make sure we're examining ourselves. But he says we need to examine the specks in our eyes and hold each other uh, to a high standard. Um, because otherwise, I mean, that kind of misses a huge part of Christian community and holding each other to the standard of Christ. And so what this means is really two things. Um, number one, it means with our non-Christian friends that we should be honest enough to tell the truth to them about the gospel. That we should tell them the truth of the gospel and, and, and not shy away from that, right? We should love them enough, like we even talked about Sunday in Galatians. We should love them enough to tell them the truth, even when it's hard, even when that's an awkward conversation. And when we tell them the truth of the gospel, right? That there really is a God who made us in his image, right? That we've all chosen to rebel against him and we've, we've chosen to sin. And so therefore we're sinners by action and by nature. Uh, that because of our sin, we're separated from God. And we try to find all kinds of ways to fulfill our desires and find satisfaction in life outside of him. But that's just a byproduct of our, of our brokenness in life, right? Uh, we tell the truth that there will be a day where all of us will be judged by God, that we will stand before God and give an account for our life. And those that aren't right with God will stand condemned in front of him. But we also tell the truth that Jesus, the son of God, came and lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place and was raised on the third day to give us victory over sin and death. And that if we repent and believe and put our faith in him and trust him, if we surrender our lives to Christ and believe in his work in our place, that we can be completely cleansed of that. We can be forgiven. We don't have to stand in judgment under God anymore. That we don't have to stand under condemnation, but we can be free and given new life and forgiven. We, we tell them the truth of that, right? We have to be honest about those things. We don't, we don't shy away from this stuff, okay? But we tell the truth in love, all right? And remember how Paul defines love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. You can probably quote it to me, but remember, love is patient and kind. So we share the gospel in patience, right? And in kindness, right? Not just niceness, but gentleness and kindness, right? Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. We don't, we're not like the internet troll of sharing the gospel. We're just like, you know, ridiculous. And we, you know, we're arrogant and like, man, you need to repent or burn, turn or burn. And, you know, let me give you 17 reasons that you need to come to Jesus today. And, you know, I'm amazing and you're not, you know, we're not arrogant and rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's patient with people. It gives them time to process the gospel and think through these kind of things. It's not irritable or resentful. If someone rejects the gospel, doesn't want to talk about it, we don't like slap them in the face and tell them, why are they listening to me about this great news I have, you know? Um, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How we endure with people in sharing the gospel. That's how we tell the truth in love. And so what this really means then is that when it comes to telling people the truth in love, we have to love people more than we love being right, all right? Not that we don't love being right and we don't hold to the truth, right? But we love people more than we love being right, okay? And that's a hard thing, especially if you're like me. And I, I mean, I kind of like being right, <laughs> you know? Like I used to be a teacher and like I pride myself on like being right and telling people, you know, what's up? But we have to love people more than we love being right, all right? Not that we give up on our convictions. But we don't let our convictions keep us from building and maintaining relationships with people that need Jesus. So that's the first part of it. But even with our relationship with non-Christians, right? It means our relationship should yet again be marked by love, not judgment. Okay, marked by love, not judgment. 
that our aim should be to build each other up, to bear each other's burdens, to, to sharpen each other, right? Not to compete and, and criticize and tear each other down because that can eat so easily happen in the church, right? It should be to build up, not to tear down. All right, number three, all right? We keep the gospel at the center, all right? Look at verse six, okay? This is a fascinating verse, all right? I've waited a long time to get this verse because it's crazy, all right? So um, uh, verse six says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you, all right? What in the world is Jesus talking about, all right? Like you read those verses, you're like, okay, pearls and pigs and holy things and dogs, like what in the world is he talking about, all right? So the common interpretation, if you read many commentaries, is this, is that, the interpretation goes something like this, that, that we have something of value, right, namely the gospel, um, but we shouldn't share the gospel with certain people because they're just going to reject it and maybe even turn and attack us and, and mock us and criticize us. All right? Now, I have, a, I have some issues with that, okay? but I'll, I'll tell you this all right, before I give you my interpretation. It's not just my interpretation. Other people agree with me. Okay, I'm not just making stuff up. Okay, if you ever think you've interpreted something in the Bible in a new way that no one else has ever said, you're probably wrong, by the way. Okay, so, um, but I will say there's some wisdom in that in the sense that sometimes there are people that we have to be wise about the way we share the gospel with them. All right, for example, if you have a friend who's an adamant atheist, who if you even mention the name of Jesus, they're gonna like, you know, blow you off or like go on a 15 minute diatribe about how the gospels aren't reliable and things like that. Maybe sitting down for coffee and trying to share the gospel, a gospel presentation with them is probably not the best way to initiate sharing the gospel, right? Maybe some different ways that we should go about, maybe part of it is we just love them where they are, we pray for them, things like that. I'm not saying we don't share the gospel with them, but depending on how people respond to us, there are different ways that we can wisely share the gospel, all right? So there, there's some maybe wisdom in that interpretation, but it kind of grates against me because Jesus just talked about judging, right? And for me, isn't it kind of judgmental to immediately say these people are dogs and, and pigs and, and vicious and they're gonna turn to attack us? So to me, that doesn't quite make sense. So let me offer this interpretation instead. And th- this seems to make a lot more sense to me based on uh, context here, right? Think about this. What does a pig do with pearls? What does a pig need pearls for? Nothing, right? What does a dog need holy things for? Like a Bible? Nothing, right? Maybe tear it up with his teeth, you know? Like pigs don't need pearls, right? Dogs don't need holy things. What do pigs and dogs need? And he's specifically talking about even the wild animals that lived in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem, right? What do those things need? Food, right? They need to eat something, all right? Hopefully not you, right? But they need to eat something. They don't need pearls. They don't need holy things. What do they need? They they need food. So I think the point here and what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about our own efforts to control people who don't believe in him and forcing our own standards upon them and not really giving them what they need. Because think in the illustration, the point is not the waste of the pearl, all right, the point is not the waste of the holy thing. The point is a dog doesn't need a holy thing. A, a pig doesn't need pearls. It needs food, right? And so here's, okay, let, me, let me apply it for you to help us make more sense, all right? Think about this. So, because we can so easily slip into this, right? We, we meet somebody, we have a friend, we know someone, and, and they don't know Jesus, and they're living in sin, right? They're, they're living, you know, in rebellion against God. You know, um, they're searching for meaning all, all kinds of ways, maybe money, GPA, sex, parties, whatever, but what they need is Jesus. You know, they need to go out every Thursday night to the strip and they're getting wasted, all kinds of stuff like that. You know, the stereotypical thing we would say. Um, but sometimes what do we do with people like that? 
whether we mean to or not, or even in our hearts. We say, well, man, if, if you would just stop doing that stuff, if you would just stop going out to the bars every Thursday night, if you stop sleeping around, if you stop doing all this stuff, then you can become a Christian. And then you can come to Jesus. Then you can come to church, maybe. You may not say the church thing, but, but we say, if you would just stop doing this stuff, then you can come to Jesus. Then you can become a Christian. But what are we doing in that? We're telling them that you have to clean yourself up before you can come to Jesus. And in that, we're saying, okay, I'm gonna push my pearls on you. I'm gonna push my holy things on you because this is what you really need. But really what they need is not pearls and not holy things. It's the gospel. It's food. It's salvation. But we take these things that we call our pearls and holy things, we, we push them on them instead of giving them uh, what they need, right? Um, and yes, Jesus calls us to repent from our sins, right? He absolutely calls us to do that. But repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin, right? We don't have to clean ourselves up in order to come to Jesus and earn our salvation with him. I love the way that Louis Giglio, said, Louis Giglio says it, the guy who founded Passion. He says this, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive, right? Not bad people good, dead people alive. So instead of us telling people all the things they have to do before they can come to Jesus, maybe we should just tell them about the greater love of Jesus. The, the love that is so much more satisfying than any wild party, all right, than any relationship, than any amount of money, any amount of success, all right, anything else in this world. We tell them about the greater love of Jesus. And if it, when they meet Jesus, I believe Jesus is, Jesus is pretty good at cleaning people up on his own, right? And he uses us, he uses the church, he uses relationships. It, for many people, it's a long kind of trajectory of, of him working on their lives, but he uses us in that process, don't get me wrong. But he's the one that cleans people up, right? It's not our job to say, well, do these things, then you can come to Jesus, all right? But instead, we give them what they need, which is the gospel, okay? And let me give you an example from the Bible, if you're kind of not jiving with me. Consider the woman caught in adultery in John 8, all right? You know this story, this woman is caught in adultery. These Pharisees, they, they drag her out into the, the street, which by the way, where was the dude? They never dragged the dude out there, right? But they bring this woman out there, they gather around her and they, they say, Jesus, you know, the law says we can stone this lady. You know, what, can we do that? Can we go ahead and kill her for committing adultery? And Jesus walks up, and says, and walks up to the guys and he says this, he, he who is, um, let me get this right. He who has no sin, cast the first stone. He who has no sin, cast the first stone. And they all begin to drop the rocks uh, and walk away. It says from the oldest to the youngest, which I think is interesting. The wisest ones are like, oh yeah, I got lots of sin. I'm walking out of here. You know? And the young, you know, arrogant guys, it takes them a minute to figure it out. But, um, and then he tells the woman in verse 11, what does he tell her? He says, you, he says, neither do I condemn you, right? Remember, same word there, neither do I judge you, right? Neither do I condemn you. You go and sin no more, all right? You go and sin no more, all right? And he didn't tell her, to go and sin no more because that would save her and make her acceptable to God, right? But it was because he had accepted her, right? Because he had, we could say even saved her, but because he had become acceptable to him that he tells her in light of what has happened in her life, go and sin no more, right? He doesn't tell her, hey, go and stop sleeping around, break up with that dude, get out of this, and then come back to me and we'll talk about, you know, how we're doing and how our relationship is. No, he says, you Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, right? So God's acceptance of us is never based on us cleaning ourselves up enough. It's simply based on coming to Jesus, right? And hear me out again. Repentance is key in the gospel, right? But it's not about cleaning ourselves up first, but it's about coming to Jesus first. Because as long as we stand condemning our friends who don't know Christ by pushing our pearls and our holy things on them, 
without actually showing them that we love them and that we want them to know Jesus, really we are the problem. And we're the problem so many times because you've heard it before, uh, the Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Uh, D.T. Niles said that. I know who said it for a long time. I don't know who D.T. Niles is, but I found it on the internet. Okay, so it's gotta be true. Okay, but, um, but Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar, beggar where he found bread. And so really what happens is this, is we come as fellow dogs and fellow pigs to other fellow dogs and pigs telling them, hey, this is where I found food, where I found the bread of life and we share it with them, all right? The message of the gospel is not stop sinning, all right? The message of the gospel is look to Jesus, that he is the thing that can satisfy us. And once we find him beautiful and come to him, then Jesus along with us and using his church can begin the process of cleaning someone up, all right? and making them into his image. That makes sense? All right, if you have questions about that, feel free to come talk to me after, all right? But um, I think that's a, a powerful thing there. All right, number four, all right? Keep asking, seeking, and knocking. Look at verse uh, seven through 11 with me again. Jesus says this, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Um, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks you for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to, your, to those who ask him? Yet again, the Bible's funny. Imagine a dad being like, hey, heard you wanted a roll. Here's your roll. And the kid's like, thanks, dad. And like bites it. Ah, oh, this is a rock. You know, like, what the heck? Or, hey, I heard you wanted seafood. Here you go. It's a snake. You know, it's like, what the heck? Like, this is really random. All right, it's kind of, it's weird. You know, I just had this really funny picture of like a snake in like a pot or something. You know, it's just kind of random. All right, it's just, I'm, I'm weird like that. All right, I find these things funny. Um, and they, these verses, they kind of seem random on their own, right? Like you read this, you're like, okay, Jesus is talking about judging and Okay, Kyle gave me this interesting interpretation about the pigs, so maybe I'm with him on that. So like we're not condemning, we're giving them the gospel relationships. But then we have prayer. We're like, but then ask and, and seek and, and knock. Like, what, what is Jesus like kind of being disjointed? Well, here's the thing. So far in the sermon, Jesus has not been disjointed, right? He hasn't been hopping around to different topics so far. So I don't think we should assume he is in these verses, all right? Now, there's lots of things we could talk about. These verses are interesting because you really, you could take them out of context and get a lot of good stuff and not be wrong, right? The importance of seeking God in prayer, persevering in your faith, knowing you have a good father who loves you and, and wants you to press on into him, knowing he's gonna answer and be there for you. Amazing things. But if we look at this in context, it seems like what Jesus is doing is this. He's getting real with us in the midst of this mess. He knows the stuff he's talking about is hard, right? He knows the situations he's discussing are challenging, that the relationship problems and the kind of tension in relationships we're talking about isn't easy. And so he gives us an answer to what do we do when we're struggling in relationships with conflict with people, with unforgiveness, with things like that. What do we do, right? What he, what he doesn't tell us to do is go to somebody else and talk about it, right? He doesn't tell us to go to somebody else and gossip about the this, this situation. He doesn't tell us to go to anything other than him and maybe read books and more strategies about how to fix relational conflicts, although books and things like that are great. But what is the thing he tells us to do in these verses? He tells us to go to God over those things, right? Go to God in him, uh, go to God in prayer and ask for change, right? He says it's, we should keep on asking, keep on seeking God, keep on knocking on his door in prayer, being confident that he will answer. All right, and so when we struggle with a difficult relationship, when we know that maybe a person that we're friends with needs to change or when we need to change, you know, when, when we're tempted to judge and condemn someone, the first thing that we should do is go to God and pray for that person. Pray for that relationship and seek God's will in his word and in prayer and, and then to keep on praying. 
All right, we seek him out in that way. But honestly, isn't that the polar opposite of what we want to do sometimes? But Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, I love the way he said this. He says, when the illusion of control disappears, we become men and women of prayer. All right, when the illusion of control disappears, we become men and women of prayer. So when we begin to realize that we have much less control in our lives than we think we do, that we really begin to realize the power of prayer. Right. And that applies to more than this, but it definitely applies in this. When we have relationships where we don't feel like we can fix it, you know what I mean? We, um, it becomes so much more clear our need to go to the Lord in prayer. All right? And even this idea can even apply, I think, to relationships themselves. All right? Think about this for a second with me. Because honestly, isn't asking one of the simplest ways to deal with a with problem, but yet we're so like, hesitant to ask for stuff? Like, who here hates asking for help? for anything, right? Yeah, I, I hate asking for, I like, when me and Haley get lost going places, I hate stopping and like asking for directions, but I don't do that anymore because of Google. But like, you know, even we're, if we're in somewhere like a store trying to find like, you know, the, the toilet paper or something in the, in the store, I don't want to ask anybody, hey, where's the toilet paper? I want to find it because I'm a man. I, I can find my way around the store, all right? You know? <laughs> you know, I don't need to ask anybody. You know, we hate asking for help, right? We hate asking, right? Because it humbles we need to be clear and straightforward in our communication and ask someone and talk about an issue if it comes up and if it exists instead of finding other ways to skirt around it and ignore it. If we have a problem with someone, we ask them about it and we commit to seek a solution in that. Instead of silently judging someone in your heart, you know, maybe talk it out with that person. Maybe even ask forgiveness from them if, if, you've, if you've been judging them in your heart. Ask forgiveness from them. Maybe with your non-Christian friends, be straight about the gospel. And when we share the gospel, like we talked about this at Pursue, but even when we talk about the gospel to people, we should be straight in even asking them to respond. As part of sharing the gospel, I've been convicted about, is it not just even talking about what God's doing in our lives, which it absolutely is, but it's even giving someone an opportunity to respond to that and asking them, do you want to do this? Do you want to put your faith in Jesus? And that's awkward. That's hard. But that's part of sharing our faith. And with our Christian friends, we, we, if we have something we need to work out, we can be honest and ask them and be united in prayer over the issue and not seek to skirt around it or try to deal with it on our own, all right? Because how often do we get frustrated in our relationships and give up without, without ever going to God over that person? I, I know my own tendency, way more often than it should be, is not to see prayer as a first resort, but to see it as something I, I go to after I've kind of done what I think I can do many times, right? But we see in James, the book of James and um, Drew even mentioned this earlier, but in James 4, it says this. It says, verses 2 and 3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Right? So how many times do we not even go to God over things like relationships? Because he cares about that. We may not think he does. But he, he so cares about our relationships and our conflict because that really glorifies him in the church when we have uh, God-honoring relationships. But even sometimes we ask wrongly when we ask for selfish motives instead of submitting ourselves to him and his will. And so I want to challenge us. Let's be people um, who don't refuse. Let's not be people who refuse to ask God for things he's promised us. And he's promised um, to provide for us even in our struggles with friends and family, all right? And we see that there at the end of those verses because God, or Jesus says, we have a perfect heavenly father who loves us in relationships. If Jesus sent his son, sorry, if God sent his son, Jesus, uh, to save you from eternal condemnation and to give you eternal life, surely he can work out your relationship problems, right? Surely he has the power to, to fix things. It may not always be that both of you are reconciled. Some, reconciliation is a two-way street, right? But surely he has the power to help you forgive someone, 
uh, to show forgiveness in your heart and show love to that person. And surely he has the power to provide for you in whatever way, even if it seems impossible. Because the focus in these verses, it's not, it's not even on like how well you pray. Some of you guys are like nervous prayers, like you don't like to pray in public because you don't feel like you pray well, which I mean, part of that's like, you just talk to God, you know? Um, you, don't, you don't have to use big theological words. Um, but it doesn't matter even how like skilled we are in prayer or even the persistence of our prayer. The point of these verses is the goodness of God and his goodness in answering our prayer, right? And even when it seems like he's withholding things from us, Jesus shows us that we have a good God that promises to give us only good gifts, even when it seems like it's not a good gift in the moment. In the end, it's a good gift, all right? I'm kind of getting to a whole different message here, so I'm going to kind of back off, all right? But last thing we want to see, and we'll wrap up with this tonight, okay? Um, is, uh, oh man, all right, we'll wrap up with this. Uh, verse 12, all right, we see the golden rule. Last thing, do to others what you wish they would do to you. Because Jesus sums it up in this way. But notice the golden rule, because we're all familiar with it. Notice, notice it's a positive command, okay? Right? It's not a negative command. It's, it's not, um, don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you, right? That's called being a decent human being. All right, that's, we all should do that, right? Don't cut somebody off if you, you know, don't want to be cut off kind of thing, you know. Um, don't be a jerk if you don't want anybody to be a jerk to you. But no, it's, it's not a negative command, it's a positive command. That the things that we want people to do for us, the way we want people to treat us, we should treat them that way. And that's a, a lot higher than simply not doing um, bad things, but that's really a way to love people sacrificially. That's something way more significant than simply avoiding being a jerk to people, right? But it's seeking to love people sacrificially. And how impossible is that on our own? Have you ever tried to love people and do things for, for people the way that you want people to do for you? Like how selfish are we that like, if we were really honest in that, we would like be like, man, if I really do that, then I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be serving people in all kinds of ways all the time because I wanna be served <laughs> in a lot of different ways, right? And so how impossible on our own is that standard of loving people and doing things to them what, in the way that you wish they would do for you, right? And so in this, I think we see two things. Number one, in this verse, we see Jesus kind of um, tying a big bow on this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you remember 517, very beginning, um, beginning-ish of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that he came uh, not to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And yet again, here in verse 12, he says that, he, that this is the law and prophets, right? The golden rule that whatever you wish to do to others, um, do also to them, that is the law and prophets. So we see Jesus kind of really bracketing this whole thing off to say that his teaching is beginning to come to a close. But really he's saying this is that the sum of the Old Testament is to simply love God and love other people in the way that he loves us, all right? Because Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And the thing is he perfectly obeyed the golden rule. Because if we're honest, man, like if that's the standard that we're called to, if the law and prophets can be summarized in the golden rule, we've all messed up. We're all jacked up. Every day we treat people differently than we, than we want them to treat us, right? And if that's the law and the prophets and if that's the standard that God expects of us, then we all absolutely fail, no matter how good we think we're doing uh, in life. But the thing is, Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the golden rule for us. He came of our sin. And really, Jesus, he perfectly lived out the Sermon on the Mount in our place, right? He came and lived that perfect life and died in our place. So that if, if we put our faith in him, if we trust in his finished work for us, we can be forgiven of our sin and not stand under condemnation from God because of our inability to follow the law and the prophets. But also, like we've talked about, he gives us this beautiful picture in the gospels and this beautiful golden rule even as a, a, a guide and, and a navigational instruction for us in the way that we should treat other people, right? In the way that we should, we should relate in the church. And like we've talked about before, this is a, the good life, the guide that Jesus gives us. It, it's a life of flourishing. 
But that good life is only found in a relationship with him. And like we've seen so far, it's not about external conformity to some rules. This isn't about empty religion that cares more about what other people think about you than what God thinks about you. It's not about caring more about your own comfort and security than eternal things. It's not about thinking you're so spiritual that you become self-righteous and judge other people. But instead, it's about having your heart changed by King Jesus, being brought into his kingdom, where you submit everything and you submit your whole life to him, uh, to his will and mission for your life. All the while looking forward to the day when that kingdom is completed and he returns, all right? So that's what we see in these verses. And, and next week, we're gonna finish up chapter seven by looking at really the conclusion of the sermon because really Jesus is kind of beginning in verse 13 to kind of do his conclusion. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks after spring break. Um, but for tonight, I want us to discuss these verses. So I wanna pray for us and then we'll take just a few minutes here uh, to discuss and then we'll be done for tonight. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just how challenging it is, Lord, that we look at even things like the golden rule and we see how unable we are to live by that standard. Um, But yet, Lord, we know that you are so gracious, Lord. You're so loving and that you sent uh, your son to completely live this out in our place so that like Drew prayed earlier from 2 Corinthians, that we could receive his righteousness and he could take on our sin so we could receive new life in you. And then we could come back to these principles as an illustration, as a guide, and as a powerful example for how we should live and how we should display the love of Jesus to other people. So I pray you would uh, open our hearts even in discussion to help us apply this more to our lives and help us to live out the kind of love that you've shown us in Christ. I pray in Christ's name, amen.